Welcome to episode 108, providing inclusive, respectful care to your gender-questioning transgender and non-binary clients, featuring Dara Hoffman-Fox, licensed professional counselor. For information about the free CE credit associated with this interview, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com. By Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Elizabeth Irias, and I am delighted to be joined today by Dara Hoffman-Fox. This episode is proudly sponsored by Discovery Behavioral Health. Dara, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Elizabeth. Um, Just wanted to let everyone know my pronouns are they, them, theirs. Thank you, Dara. So Dara is a licensed mental health counselor in private practice in Colorado Springs. Dara is considered a subject matter expert in the field of trans awareness and presents frequently on the topic at a national level at conferences and symposiums, and is also the author of a well-known book called You and Your Gender Identity, A Guide to Discovery. Uh, Dara, again, thank you. And why don't you take a moment to tell us more about you and how you came to have the specialization? Sure. I, of course, greatly appreciate the opportunity to be on your platform too. Um, It means a lot to me. So I am a mental health practitioner in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I've had a private practice since 2008. And I have been working with the uh, gender questioning, trans, transgender, non-binary community since then even before then actually, um, which is a really long time back before a lot of folks um, in the mainstream really knew more about what's going on with these populations. And so the reason that happened is that uh, after graduate school, I ended up working at our local pride center and through meeting people in the community there, just kind of made a name for myself as somebody who could be trusted which is kind of hard to find, at least back then in Colorado Springs. It is um, more of a conservative community. And so once I start, I recognized there was a real need for me to start a private practice so I could help. I called it the Bohemian Sanctuary because it was kind of like anybody who, you know, LGBT, polyamorous, kink, um, trans, everybody needed someone to visit. Uh, and I was very busy for a while because there was not enough practitioners in my area willing to work with these populations in a way that could help them feel supported and safe. And so by, I was doing that for about three years and really continued to notice that like, wow, like there are a lot of people who are gender questioning and who are transgender who need help with this. And so I did really focus on going to conferences, doing trainings and one conference in particular in 2000, 14 that I went to, they had a workshop in which you could learn more about non-binary identities. And after I left that workshop, I I realized I was non-binary and had not known it because I was born in 1974. So there just wasn't a lot of at all language around that that was even an option. And so even in the midst of me working with the population, not having any idea that this is what was going on with me, um, it was really amazing and eye-opening and revealing to then go through that process myself. It was actually very unexpected as well. And so during this time, I I also had started a blog and a YouTube channel because I could tell there was just so much more that was needed for these communities and um, on a sort of like personal more self-serving side, my undergraduate degree was in communication and I love multimedia and marketing and doing things like that. So I was able to merge my interest in being a therapist with the multimedia aspect, with my passion for working for and with the transgender community. Um, Thank you for joining us and sharing what for you is not just a professional relationship, but a personal relationship and what this topic means. There is so much to say. And when you and I had first discussed this topic, it was answering exactly that question that you just brought up of how do we support practitioners um, that either are already working with uh, transgender and gender nonconforming individuals or people that are just really wanting to learn more about it, appreciating that those are people that, that are in our lives and that a lot of people don't necessarily recognize that, whether that's in our personal lives or in our practices. So Dara, where do we start? Where do we start in this conversation about what it means to be uh, 
TGNC, so that's transgender nonconforming competent, quote unquote, what that even means, if that even exists. Why don't we start there? Mm -hmm. So um, I want to share a resource with your audience and um, you can just look this up on the interwebs, but um, it's called Approaches to Working with Gender Diversity. And the name of the person who created this, his name is Adam Sosita. And uh, he created this list of um, ways that you can, as a therapist, take a look and see, okay, where do I fall on this list? So for instance, it starts with unaffirming. My guess is that the people listening to this interview are not unaffirming. They wouldn't be interested in being here. Um, even neutral, which is the next step up, potentially not. After that, you've got novice, following that you have friendly, following that you have affirming, and then last you have competent. And I think what's especially important to understand when we're talking about this is that a lot of times when I've asked therapists, what is it that are their biggest concerns when they're working with uh, these communities, just because of they want more information, awareness, experience, a lot of them use the word competent and say, you know, I don't feel competent working with this community. And I understand that word is used in a lot of different ways, especially for us as therapists, as a goal. Um, so I think this is a really helpful list to look at because for those of you who are interested in taking it all the way up to that competency level, that would require definitely a few years of working with these folks. It would require understanding a lot of the nuances involved with medical transition, legal transition, social transition, being able to provide um, letters of support for those who are needing to have those to send to their insurance companies when they want to have surgery, um, even just to acquire a hormone replacement therapy. That's competency. You know, that's going to be where you're acting as an advocate and wearing lots of different hats with your clients. Uh, those of you who are listening today, you might recognize that you're in that novice category. Maybe you're even already friendly. And my hope is that you would be able to move even more towards either the, either the friendly category or even a bit more into the affirming category. But all of it takes work. It's going to be after you, for instance, do a training or listen to this interview, there has to be follow through. And the biggest way that I want to make sure I encourage everyone to do follow through is you actually um, have to practice this on a daily basis in your everyday life with everybody in your life. And when I say this, um, talking about for those of you who are um, who are cisgender, which means you are not long and short of it is means you're not transgender. Uh, there's a certain lens that you see the world through. It's cisnormative. There's a for, we forget um, that oh, there are people who maybe don't quote unquote look like the gender I'm about to address them as. There are people who aren't men or women. I myself, because I was 40 before I realized this, I was very much conditioned to think those sort of things as well. So I still have to work very much on a daily basis to not try to make assumptions about people's gender. And so I mentioned that because as you can, as you incorporate that, that's not only going to help you as a therapist, it's going to help you be a more compassionate and kind human to those who are trans and non-binary, because you just never know on a daily basis how much you're interacting with people. You never know one day when someone's going to come out to you. And, you know, it could be a family member or, uh, you know, a sibling or anybody, a coworker, and they might say, you know, I've always noticed you're really good about how you use gender neutral language and you're careful or you correct yourself when you do this or do that. You're a safe person for me to talk to about this. Um, I've heard so many people say like, wow, I'm so glad I started to work on this because this really ended up providing this kind of environment for who knows who's going to end up coming forward and talking to me. So you can bring all of that into the therapy sessions and the therapy room. Um, that's one way to ease that nervousness is just like anything else. Uh, it's going to require practice every day. I appreciate the perspective that you bring and I'm glad you introduced kind of those, those ranks for people who are listening. Um, when it comes to understanding the experience of being a trans or non-binary person in today's society, what do you think is most important for therapists to know about this? Hmm. Big question. All right. I'm going to go with what comes to mind first. And um, I want to make sure I mention that 
it's going to be different. Well, it's going to be different depending on how old the person is you're working with for sure. And the biggest difference is when did they first, really, when did they first discover the internet and look up this, you know, what's, excuse me, going on with them. So that's why I have clients who are in their sixties who are saying, Hmm, I, uh, you know, looked up on the internet a few years ago and finally figured out what's going on with me. But you know, I'm not ready until now to start talking about it. I don't even know if I want to transition, but I finally realized there's a word for what I'm going through. I'm transgender. Or for those of you who work with um, youth, then there could be kids who started talking about this with their parents by the time they're three and they start being gendered incorrectly. And uh, they just start letting people know in their life, like, hey, this isn't you know, this isn't right. You're gendering me in a way that I'm not supposed to be gendered. And because there is more information out there, people, uh, if that child is, is so fortunate, will listen and connect with the right resources and talk with their teachers. And so it's so different, um, the different ways that people are impacted by this and when it comes to the different struggles and challenges. So I think because a lot of folks, um, who you might be seeing are going to have already gone through what really is the wrong um, puberty. There are different ways that their bodies are going to be impacted by puberty that turns out to not align with their actual gender identity. And so um, that'll be, you know, so it, it could be, it could be seeing a client who's 16 who already has been going through puberty um, and already has a lot of um, discomfort, pain, you know, and just a lot of torment involved with that. Uh, those who are older and they didn't realize this until they were in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, you're going to, um, it's important to recognize there's going to be a lot of repression involved. And just like anytime you help any of your clients who are repressing, different aspects of themselves and they have, you know, these shadow elements. Uh, that's the kind of work you're going to be doing with a lot of these folks who are gender questioning, um, helping them work through the fears that they have about unrepressing this. And what's especially challenging to go to your question is that this is not a society that is um, very welcoming for those who are trans and non-binary. So no wonder even if it's super important for somebody to unrepress and be their authentic selves, it is not um, as simple as that. There is a lot of nuance to be um, compassionate about for those who already have committed to marriages and have kids, um, those who have certain careers, certain public personas. Uh, I have, I've been doing coaching with a few different therapists and it's, and it's really hard to not, you know, go with that, let's figure out how you can be your authentic self. You know, that's separate. Like being able to know inside, all right, this is true. This is who I am as my authentic self is one thing, but then to actually then take steps to express that externally by telling people and by medically transitioning and social transitioning, that's a whole separate conversation for a lot of folks. For some people, it's one right after the other. I want to figure this out so I can go ahead and align my body with how I feel inside. And for others, there's just a lot of fears and a lot of questions and potentially in the end to be their true authentic self will mean not to transition. Um, and you'll just be helping them figure out instead, how do you live with this awareness inside yourself without being able to actually then have it validated by the rest of the world? Um, so again, just knowing that this, these are all the complications that could be involved in working with these folks and just remembering that our society is not set up um, as a place yet where that can be welcoming and affirming for those who are trans and non-binary. Thank you. And also, as you say that, also um, lacking safety. So when we go to the bare bones, the basics, and you as a therapist are sitting in the room with a client, and I've had this happen personally, I don't know if our listeners have too, but that a client says something that they have literally never said to anybody else. They may have never even said it out loud, whether it's relating to their gender or sexuality, whether it's an experience they had, whether it's what they want to do, whatever it is. And I've absolutely had it relate to gender and sexuality. Um, tell me through your lens, how does a therapist make safety 
in that moment to hold space for this huge thing that this person may never have said out loud before. Yeah, you're so right. I mean, I can even probably recall exactly all those different clients who have said that, like, I have never told anyone this before. And it's really such a such an honor to be able to be trusted in that way. So to be able to be trusted, like you said, there needs to be safety set up. Um, There's a lot that can be done before that moment to be able to create that environment. So this kind of leads into a conversation about what is it that you're doing so that your environment already just sort of conveys that, um, that acceptance, that awareness and, So I maybe would talk about this differently before the pandemic compared to during the pandemic, because um, I myself am not seeing clients in person. And so I don't have, you know, when I had an office, I was able to have, you know, posters, affirming posters on the wall. And, you know, even if there was like a transgender colored throw, you know, on draped over the couch and all these little hints and clues around the place. Um, being online right now, uh, for those of you who can do that in person, then by all means, just kind of think about how you can set up maybe um, affirming um, signage in your office. Uh, for me, I do, I have some posters behind my chair um, in my office so that you can see it on the video camera. Um, I also have a water bottle that has trans stickers on it and a coffee cups that are trans positive so that people can see them even as I'm just like hanging out with them during a session online, they can um, be able to see that. And if this is a person who's thinking about coming out to you and they haven't yet, those are things are going to very much make an impact on them. Um, Even outside of that, whether you're seeing clients in person or not, making sure that you take a look at all of your marketing. And there's two really important things you can do. One thing is that if you are... If you're comfortable doing so, and I'll explain what I mean when I say that in a moment, uh, adding your pronouns anywhere that your name is shown, and that could be on your website, that can be on your business cards, um, on your different psychology today or therapy den profiles, places like that. When you go to a conference, uh, even if it's online, uh, adding your pronouns, when you're in Zoom, you can you know, any of these online platforms, if you type in your name and you can add your pronouns after it, that kind of thing. So the reason I said, if you're comfortable doing so is that, um, putting your pronouns does, uh, you are coming out as using these certain pronouns. And I've worked with some therapists who, one of the reasons they attend my trainings is just like what happened to me is they're also questioning their own gender identity. Um, they might not know for sure if they are non-binary or if they are trans and they don't feel like they can share any pronoun without it feeling disingenuous. And so just wanted to make sure I mentioned that for anybody who's listening and you're like, I know I need to have my pronouns, but, um, you're going through a struggle like that. That's okay. There's no judgment to that. You can do so when you're comfortable and ready. So, um, putting your pronouns really does then again, it, it just is a very small change you can make that can go a long way, you know, for a potential client to even see like, wow, that therapist just listed their pronouns. They really, they must know something about this. Um, also evaluate all your marketing for gender neutral language and see if you say things, um, it depends on what area of expertise you have, but if you say men and women, um, boys and girls, and you're leaving out those who are non-binary. And so you're only mentioning either female or males. Um, that's something just to give your, give your marketing material a quick look over and see if you're saying anything like that, even gay and lesbian. I mean, nowadays, most of us are using LGBTQ, but, um, even that is, those are gendered terms. And so those are ways that you could just, you're subtly giving a sense of safety to those clients so that they know, and they've seen these things and they pick up on them. I I promise you people, they look for that. They, they start conversations with people in their life just for fun to see what they might say about a trans relevant topic. And they're keeping track of all of it. And they're keeping track of who it is in their life that they can tell would be somebody they can trust to come out to. Um, and therefore, the more you are using 
gender neutral language in your sessions. Um, making sure on your paperwork, whether it's hard copy paperwork or it's um, electronic, making sure you're, you're asking for pronouns, asking for gender identity. Because when you do that, again, it just conveys the message that you're aware that this is something that even exists and you are someone they can talk to. Uh, even if they put one gender, you know, at the beginning of your sessions and later on they come out. Um, you know, I've, I've had a lot of clients who they or a lot of therapists I've worked with say they've worked with clients whose children are trans and they just weren't even sure if they could even talk about their, their child in session or their spouse being trans. Um, so you just never know, even if that person themselves are not trans, they could have some loved ones that they'd like to be able to talk to you about during session who are. Um, I appreciate that in, in what you just said, which is basically like we can establish safety from the get-go, from the moment that a person is looking at our website, um, from the moment we email them back and letting them know, yes, there is safety here. We have the awareness as a practitioner that that this that that this is important um, for people to feel secure. Um, so thank you for for adding that part to it. When it comes to, I, I, so I have a lot of questions here about language and verbiage, and I know we'll get to that. But when it comes to a client that says to you and they're sitting on your couch, whether, well, right now they're through Zoom, but wherever they are, they're talking with you and they say, and I'm really wondering about my gender. I know having been in those conversations that the air shifts because of the power in what that person just shared with you, like to invite you into their experience and to their perspective through your lens, both as someone who works with this population and someone who's had this experience. How can practitioners be as a, as affirming and accepting in that moment as possible? And knowing that every person, every relationship is different, but you know, what are the absolutely do not say and what are the, this is helpful kind of things. Yeah, I would say that, um, again, I think we can go back to how you would potentially handle initially, how would you handle any sort of client sharing something that you can tell it's, um, a secret. It's been potentially filled with shame. Uh, it's something that they're very, nervous, but they find to share with you, but they finally, it, it just needs to come out. And so depending on how long you've known the client, what's your relationship already? Um, I would say just sort of, um, just pay attention to what's happening in the moment. One of the first things that I would potentially ask is, wow, how does that feel to finally have said that out loud? You know, you're, you're I'm the only person you've ever told that's, you know, what's going, what's going through you as you do that. So Again, it's just using all your your therapeutic skills just to even just let that, like you said, the, the air changes and there's, you need to hold space just for even the fact, you don't have to rush into anything right away. Be with the client as they sit there, potentially still feeling scared, feeling relief. Um, and then you can begin to navigate with them depending on if they still need a bit more time to sit and just sort of, you know, some I've, you know, clients have cried, uh, they, with relief or they'll, um, you could tell if they still look afraid, you can right away say something like, I'm so glad you shared that with me. I, you know, if you've known them for a long time, like, you know, this is, this sounds like this is going to be a really important part of our work going forward together. And I just want, you to know, how glad I am. You trusted me to share that with me. So hold that space for what just happened. Um, you know, you can check in and say like, do you feel ready to share a bit more with me about what's going on? Like, you know, and you can ask questions like, when did you start, you know, recognizing this or what happened that finally made you want to finally share this with me right now? Um, again, just even getting like right to the questions about gender and what's going on, that could not even happen in that session. You, that client probably just needs to be able to have a chance just to, I mean, really what usually happens, they just feel um, more connected to you, you know, and there's that to be able to navigate as well. So um, once the client is able to open up to you in this way, from there, I would say that, again, it is important to maybe um, do some uh, get some training, get some research, because, you know, if this client 
discount could be at various stages. They could be just like, you know, I've, even though you're first person I've told this to, I've already done research. I know I want to transition. I'm going to need help with this. You can then, it's okay if in the moment um, you need to say to your client, like, okay, like I absolutely want to help you with this however I can. And eventually you might need to have to find a therapist to refer them to who's more of a quote unquote gender therapist. Not that you have to stop seeing your client, but to say like, here's, I'm going to, you know, how do you feel about, um, you know, the fact that, you know, the fact that I don't have this kind of training in terms of being able to help you with the medical transition side of things. If your client says that's what they want, um, I would be happy to look together for a therapist that you can work with, a gender therapist. Um, you and I will still absolutely remain connected. That's the biggest thing to do is to to make sure you don't say anything that accidentally leads your client to think that you're saying, I don't. It, the feeling that comes across is I don't know how to work with people like you. And people have heard that from physicians as well. And so even if you're like, oh no, I don't mean that. I mean, of course we'll work together, but I don't know about trans stuff. Like just slow down and just make sure you just gather, you know, even if it takes a couple of questions, make sure you gather the information before you share something like that. I'm glad you bring up that piece because I I know for me, there absolutely have been disclosures in therapy that I did not see coming. And then there is that little momentary freak out of like, oh my goodness, I don't know where I go with this. And then remembering like, well, this person just told me something really important. This is not about me and my clinical experience right now. This is about me just sitting with a human and appreciating the power of what they just said. So I'm glad you bring up that piece of like, don't, don't jump into feeling like you need to know all the information right now. It's just being with them and not doing something to other them, so to speak. Um, in your experience, in the stories that you've heard and the things that you've seen, what are some ways that therapists create uncomfortable and even painful experiences through unintentional microaggressions relating to um, discussions of gender identity, whether that's the very first session or ongoing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is part of where um, making sure on the daily you're practicing recognizing any of the um, it's cisgender bias, cisgender privilege, cis normative language, all of that. It's going to take that kind of practice to make sure in those moments you don't um, accidentally say something with those clients. So in the meantime, while you're still working on that and practicing that. Um, again, I think that's why it's so important in your paperwork just to have those options for clients to fill that out. That'll help you with those clients who, um, as you're working together, then you will know what's going on. If later in session, they end up sharing something with you, um, it's really important. And I think especially for those who are non-binary, there's um, even within the trans community, there's a sense of non-binary kind of being like the bisexuality of of gay and lesbian. It's like, there's a lot of people who are, um, they're like, oh, non-binary, great. Like there's a lot of um, discomfort in addition to just being potentially not cisgendered layered on top of non-binary because it's something so many people don't understand. And if you use they, them pronouns, it's such a pain in the butt. And so, especially if you're working with someone, which is how I, I, it's happening more and more. And if you work with people who are younger, you're going to Absolutely. If you haven't already seen it, there's going to be a lot more people talking about non-binary identities. Um, so it is especially important that if somebody comes out to you and if you especially don't have um, information enough information about non-binary, you need to start right away and start looking into that. And um, there, it's really important to know that there's no specific route that anybody might take for transition. So be sure not to make any assumptions. You know, if somebody is talking about transition or they're being trans, don't assume right away. Okay. Hormones is first. And then this surgery is next, or this surgery is next, or coming out at work is next, or changing your name is next. There's no timeline. There used to be, which is what can be confusing. It's because the WPATH um, standards of care which is the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, used to say a person has to um, be seeing a therapist for a year before they can get permission, quote unquote, to start hormones. I still have clients, 
even young clients who come to me and say, so, all right, I guess we start our year of therapy. Like there is, I mean, it's the internet. So it's hard to know sometimes if you're getting updated information or not. Um, so that leads me to make sure to recommend that everybody who's listening, if you are seeing any trans clients, non-binary clients, and honestly, you never know, you could have clients right now or in the future, go ahead and download the WPATH Standards of Care. Um, it's a free PDF that you can get on the internet. And I'm sure we could put a link in there for that. They're on version seven right now. Um, it's a little awkward because they're really working hard on version eight because this one has been out for several years. And there's gonna be a lot of great updates to version eight, but version seven still is still much better than version six was and all the versions before that. It will tell you everything that you need to know right now. For instance, that requirement that used to happen about hormone therapy, like you do need to know, at least, you don't have to know all the ins and outs of medical transition, but you need to know enough to let your client know if they say, hey, like, what will I be able to do in terms of transition? Um, you can find out what the laws are in your own state, for instance, and I can send a link to you where you can go to a website to look at that. So making, jumping to any conclusions, making any assumptions about where a person is in their transition um, or where they wanna go next, really hold back on that. Really let the client be the one to invite you into that and explain that to you. And more than likely, they're gonna need your help helping them figure out what do they want to do first? What do they want to do next? Um, as well, as I mentioned earlier, don't assume that everybody's going to want to transition or at least not right now because of all the different life circumstances, including socioeconomic challenges. You know, if, can they afford transition? Does their insurance cover medical transition or even just trying to get your name changed that costs quite a bit of money? Um, so keep in mind, um, that reminds me of the intersectionality of the different other social identities that the folks who are in your office are going to have, you know, think, be sure to think about that in terms of what are some other potential systems of oppression that they're facing and not to lose sight of that as you're working with clients, because then they're going to, if they're going to add trans or non-binary to another set of systems of oppression that they're already being marginalized by, then the fear that they have is probably going to be higher. The challenges and the roadblocks are probably going to be even harder for those clients. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, one of the things that I think comes up a lot, and um, and there's obviously much we could say just simply about this topic. What are some of the words that have been used previously that are no longer okay now? Um, I know I was looking for a book last week, uh, and I was on Amazon, and one of the book titles used the term transgendered. Um, can you talk with us about some of these words that have been used either to other the community or are used within the community that are simply no longer uh, acceptable? What are some of those words that therapists need to be aware of in making sure that they are using language that is affirming and is appropriate and is up to date? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, one of the ones that I know not everybody knows yet, because even during the com I attended a conference this weekend and somebody said um, preferred pronouns. It's been a couple years since that has been um, falling out of fashion, I would say. And I mean, I see stuff on Facebook where it shows me my memories and it I used it as well. And, and everybody used it. But um, it's interesting how it then takes a bit for people to kind of sit back and be like, wait a second. When I say, or somebody says, I prefer these pronouns, or I prefer you call me by this name, that's not enough. I mean, we're not just saying, well, I prefer chocolate over vanilla ice cream, but if I get vanilla, that's fine. Like a person's not saying, I prefer this, but you can do whatever you want. Like you say, like, my name is this, my pronouns are this. And so when you're asking people for their name and pronouns, you can use the word chosen, for instance. What are your chosen pronouns? What is your chosen name? What pronouns do you use? Is even just a very conversational way that you can ask that. And so, um, yes. And so even right now, if you're like, oh no, I have to go back and change stuff. That's okay. I literally was in the middle of recording an online course to explain to people how they can put 
posters up in their office and I had an old poster up and it said, my preferred pronouns are they, them, and he, him, she, her. And in the middle of my course, I was like, I just recognize my posters are outdated, but I'm not going to erase this because I just want you to understand even I um, am learning these different things as I go along. So um, that's one, that's one that maybe not even all your clients would know it, but I think the younger clients will definitely pick up on that real quick. Uh, you mentioned about um, transgendered and yes, that's uh, if, if anybody has that on the website, the, the client is just going to move on. They are not even going to contact you. Um, that has never been the right way to say it. I know in the past, it's like people were trying to figure out the right way to talk about it. Like you don't say somebody is transgendered. A person um, is transgender. And honestly, a lot of people, you know, some people who are transgender, they don't, they don't even want to be using that as an adjective for themselves. Uh, they maybe need to use that word to inform their therapist and their medical practitioner that the reason I want hormone therapy or surgeries is because I am transgender. But when it comes down to it, I would rather you see me as a woman or as a man or as a non-binary person. And so um, remembering that even the words like trans and non-binary and transgender are words that we're using to discuss these folks, but you have to wait and see what words are they comfortable using for themselves. And again, it could also change over time. So be aware of that for yourself as well as, well as for your clients too. Um, I Some folks have asked me about transsexual versus trans versus transgender, what's going on with all of that. I would say that um, generationally, like I was mentioning before, I do quite a few of my older clients and I'm talking about maybe in their 60s and 70s when they first started learning about this. And this was even before the internet. They were able maybe to look in an encyclopedia or heard about it in the news story. Um, the word transsexual was used more often. So um, that is not used um, commonly anymore. However, again, if you have a client that uses that word, you don't have to stop them and tell them we don't use that word anymore. That, that's They're going to use that because potentially that's the word they grew up with for decades thinking in their head, I wonder if I'm a transsexual. So um, don't take that from that client in that moment, but don't use it in your marketing basically, or with other clients is what I'm saying. Um, alternating between trans and transgender, you know, I tend to do that when I'm doing interviews or, you know, teaching about it. But again, there are a lot of folks who are particular about which word they use for themselves. Uh, for instance, I myself use trans as opposed to transgender because, and you know, I don't know, partially, partially it just feels right to me in terms of a broader umbrella because I'm non-binary. And um, I feel like for those who are transgender, um, that nowadays has sort of replaced the transsexual word in terms of saying it's somebody who goes through um, a, a lot of the medical and social and legal transition steps. So not to minimize the fact that, you know, there are a few transition steps I have taken, but, um, and again, this is, it's interesting because you've got the community themselves who are coming up with, when do we use these words and when do we not? And then you've got the medical community using it in a different way. And then the you know, mental health community using it in a different way. So the grand statement there is um, ask your clients, you know, and, and or just listen to them. And more than likely, they're going to share words with you, uh, especially those who are younger. I find it's great just to listen to what they say. If there's something that they say and you're like, what does that mean? Then, you know, if it's important in the moment and you need to ask them, you can, but if it's something where you can just jot it down and look it up later, um, that's going to really mean a lot. And you're going to learn a lot through that process as well. Absolutely. Um, my other question, there are lots of different terms. Can you kind of give us the, the uh, TGNC 101, if you will, about what what trans means, what, what uh, non-binary means, what questioning means for people that are 
really starting to expand their awareness of what these different terms mean. And and yes, as you said, like there's obviously research can be done on the internet. I also want to invite our listeners. Um, we had a wonderful presentation by Kyle Bullock um, that is one of our previous podcasts. I don't know the number off the top of my head, but he goes through some really wonderful information about what you should have in your um, in your intake forms in different releases and how you're talking with family members, what pronouns are okay to to use with a person, but different pronouns for family members, different conversations. So that's there as a resource for you as a previous podcast. Um, but Dara, please tell us kind of what we do, um, what we do need to know as the basics about what these different words even mean. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the simplest ways that I try to explain it is that uh, you think about how when a child is born, they are assigned a gender at birth or interchangeably, you could say they're assigned a sex at birth, but because of that, they're also assigned a gender at birth. And so basically it's like, okay, we see a penis. We're assigning that baby um, male as their sex and gender. Okay. We see a vagina. We're going to assign that baby female for both their sex and gender. And so the thing is that uh, that is really just a wild guess. I mean, it's even before the baby's born. You know, when you, if you have an ultrasound, you are taking a wild guess as to what that baby's gender is. And that's why gender reveal parties, besides the fact that they cause fires sometimes, are really being frowned upon. Even the person who first had, I guess, publicly kind of made it known that she was having a gender reveal party, she is retracting that and saying, not just for safety reasons, but just for the, you know, just to be understanding for those who are trans, this is not okay. So yes, a baby cannot tell you what what their gender identity is. And so at a certain point, and each child is different when they're able to recognize this as well as what is their environment? When are they starting to be socialized with other children and people are starting to gender them? I've heard that some people who are twins can have a really interesting experience with this because especially if they're both quote unquote, the same sex at birth. And then one of them realizes like, why do you keep, you know, that sure that's my brother, but I am not a boy too, um, the genderedness of life in, in our society really becomes prevalent for kids at a very, very young age. And so um, for those whose gender, it turns out, does not align with that, and I call it like a wild guess, just so you can really, you know, it's just a coincidence, like that baby was assigned female at birth, and it turns out that baby is female. What a coincidence. That person is cisgender then. So again, that that um, prefix of cis means same. So they align with their gender. They were assigned at birth. And so for those who are trans, and again, that's for those who um, want to use that word to describe themselves. But for those basically who are not cisgender, it means you do not align with your gender assigned at birth. Um, at the beginning of my book, you know, I, I pose the question, like, how do you know if this book is for you? And the question is, you know, do you have a suspicion that your actual gender does not align with your gender assigned at birth? And that can be a helpful question because then it means you're not right away asking yourself, am I trans? Am I transgender? Am I non-binary? That is, there's just like a flood of fear and confusion and emotions and uncertainty. But if you just ask yourself, well, do I not feel like this gender I was assigned at birth of male or of female? You can say maybe, and that just means that means you're probably gender questioning. You know, if you even are asking yourself this question in the first place, let alone um, saying that it's a maybe. And so that gives you permission to, yes, like, you know, pick up my book, find a therapist you can talk to about this because you are in that moment questioning when you're, we say you're questioning your gender, you're questioning the gender you were assigned at birth, the gender you were told you are. And of course there's all the, um, you know, conditioning and there's stereotypes involved and things like that, but there's this truth, you know, your sense of gender is something where if somebody is questioning that, then more than likely they there really is at least something going on, especially with now that there's so much more flexibility with um, non-binary 
being something that people are talking about now. As for being non-binary, again, it's an, it's another option. You know, if somebody feels like they are not aligned with their gender assigned at birth, it could mean that they are binary, but just not the binary gender they were assigned. Instead of being male, it could be they're female. Instead of being female, they could be male. Or there are those who are non-binary as well. And I do want to make sure I mention that there, are, of course, are those who are born with intersex conditions um, of having ambiguous genitalia and also the chromosomal makeup, um, what's going on inside of them. And so right there, you're, you're so besides even being assigned male or female at birth, for those who are intersex, there's even another layer of trying to figure this out. And hopefully um, a medical practitioner and parents have not decided for that child which genitalia they should have instead. Because uh, again, you haven't asked that child, been able to ask that child what their gender identity is. Um, some other terms we can talk about would be, um, for instance, if somebody says that they have a dead name. Um, this is something that not all, it's interesting because I see the language definitely being used. Um, some people where they're working hard on not feeling like the person they were before is no longer around after they transition, like this person is dead to me. There's an accidental sort of new repression that happens of that old self and potentially shame and hatred towards that old self. Um, so, you know, people might say my birth name, I do not, do not call me by my birth name anymore. This is the name I now use because the name that they chose for themselves is more gender affirming. And so that's the name that they want you to use for them. So, you know, if you hear that, like about dead name, birth name, prior name, um, for sure, if people haven't legally changed their name yet, you might, that's why on your forums, it's okay to still have a spot for a legal name. Besides, I ask them first, what is the, what is their chosen name? Because of course, that's the name I want to use for them. And underneath that's kind of like as a sub, you know, sub thought, like second thought, like, oh, also, what's your legal name? You know, especially for insurance and things like that, it still might need to be known. Um, but it is really important to be sure uh, to, if, especially if you've known someone and they do change their name, just start practicing that constantly, not just when you're in session with that client, not just when you're writing their notes. Like, you know, even at home, if I had one therapist who had said they went home and they wrote down, you know, this client's name is this, and they just wrote it down on a piece of paper, you know, 50 times until they knew for sure. Same thing with pronouns is that, you know, this client's name is now this, and they use these pronouns. Um, because it's true, your brain is going to need a chance to adjust, and you don't want to make that mistake in front of a client, even if it does happen which it might, you know, just quickly correcting yourself and moving on is really the best advice for that. Um, I feel like I kind of strayed from our terminology 101 here. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate that that little stray because I think you bring up an important point of the fact that uh, particularly if we as clinicians know somebody um, or in our personal lives as well, if we know somebody and we have a certain name associated with them and a, and a pronoun associated with them, that it's going to take our our brains a little practice to think about that person in a different way. And I'm glad that you brought up that piece of like, okay, and if you misgender somebody, what do you do? And from what you're saying, it's the importance of addressing it and then moving on. And when I've had these conversations with folks previously, it's been like, you know, please don't now hover over this mistake. Do you have any other feedback for practitioners when they catch themselves having made some kind of potential microaggression, whatever that might be, and they think to themselves, ooh, you know, I said this thing or I wrote this thing, whatever it is, how do you recommend clinicians bring that into the therapy room and talk with clients about that so that they can do their best to maintain safety and, and trust with that person? Yeah, like you said, especially if you catch it right in that moment when you're with the client, uh, something that's so important about acknowledging it and correcting and move on, uh, moving on, definitely take the time to do that. But you, if you go on any further than that, even if you say things like, even if you say, I'm sorry, that still brings up a feeling in that client. Oh, my therapist feels bad. My therapist feels sad. My, you know, and you're and then burden, plop gets put on the client instead. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm really trying anything like that. 
really, really work on, and again, you can do this in your everyday life too, to not say things like that because that just puts the burden on the, the client. If the client says something, you know, and I've had to do that with um, a therapist in the past, a couple of therapists, uh, you have to be careful when you're referring to the client in the past that you stay consistent with the gender that they, who they are, who you know them as present day, even if they were assigned a different gender at birth. So you're talking about their their inner child or their younger self, and you refer to them by the wrong gender. Those are, I've had to do that twice where I've let a therapist know, which is hard because you're in the middle of the groove. Like you said, then you're like, actually, that's not my pronoun. Um, that would be, again, that's another situation where just you know, cr- you know, correct it and say, I'm sorry, you know, just don't say, I'm sorry. Just say, you can say, thank you instead of saying, I'm sorry. Um, and so just say, Oh, thank you. And then use the correct one and move on. And then after the session, if you need to process that you're embarrassed, you're ashamed of yourself, you know, sure. That, of course that'll probably come up because you don't, you didn't want to happen to do that during the session. Wait until after the session to process all of that depending on how you feel like that interaction went with the client, do you need to follow up with them before your next session to check in? Or is it something where, again, is that going to come across as like too much your own stuff? You know, can you bring it up in the next session or in the next session, did you right away pick it up quickly and they can see, wow, you did your work since our last session. And then to themselves, you know, they might, I have said out loud to a therapist, thank you. I can tell you, have really worked on that because you've never misgendered me since that one time. So it potentially will happen, but what do you do after that? Like you said, that's what's really important in the moment. And then how do you then make sure that to do everything you can to make sure that doesn't happen again? If your client doesn't say something, it's using that um, your power of observation and intuition as a therapist. Did You might not even notice that you said something, but your client just something changes in the air. You notice there's some distance that occurred. Um, You might kind of start thinking back in your head, did I say something where I misgendered the client or say something gendered? Um, Or you can pause and say, I can tell there's something's happened. Um, You're feeling a little distant to me. I just wanted to pause to check in and see what's up. Uh, See if if your client does say something about it. It's hard. It is hard even in the, the safety of our therapist's office to stop and say, I just need to let you know you messed up. That is, it's really, it's not easy for, for the client. And I understand as the practitioner, I've done it before too, where it feels, um, it doesn't feel good. So yes, it's about healing that moment, you know, and then using it even as a therapeutic um, moment to reflect on if needed. But if it's something that can be quick and remedied, and then you show that client after that, that you are, you have, you don't just memorize their name. You don't just memorize their pronoun. You experience them as that person who they truly are. I appreciate that you brought up that point um, in my own experience clinically. And I saw it consult from a colleague and talked through it of like, okay, I need to practice and I need to really shift my perception and my understanding. And, and, and that was its own process because I was aware that I was in this position of honor to know, and I wanted to appropriately honor that. And certainly my experience of that was not an overnight process. Like that was like, okay, here, you know, I, I, this is my thing to work on. And for any of our listeners that are working with, uh, trans and gender nonconforming people to seek consultation. And and Dara, you and I have talked about that before, but the importance of looking around and asking whether it's in a, in a safe Facebook group or it's a consultation group, but knowing what's out of your depth and when you need to talk something through whatever it is that's coming up for you so that you don't bring it into the therapy room and make that the client's problem. Um, that's, that's, you don't want to make that their problem. This is, this is your problem clinically. Um, there are so many more questions that I could ask you on this topic, and our time is starting to run down. Um, and as you and I talked about what we were going to be talking about today, from the get-go, it was like, you know, here's here are just some themes that we need to consider as practitioners and working with TGNC people. Um, when it comes to someone in therapy that has, that let's say they're questioning, 
what do you as a practitioner do to encourage them um, for a safe space with you? So of course, I know you would say, what pronouns? And what do you want me to call you? What are other things that you do really deliberately to make safety for that person in session with you, whether that's online or that's actually in your office? What does that look like? Sure. Just to recap those sort of unconscious things that that can help in terms of, like I said, even if you have a, a coffee cup or a water bottle signage. So that's like the external, um, your own language. I know one of the things that I picked up on this year was that my daughter started her first year of college and I called her a freshman at one point and somebody pointed out that's a gendered term. Um, you know, it doesn't matter if like, we've well, forgotten it's a gendered term, just like you know, it's more obvious when someone says a uh, fireman um, or mailman, but catching yourself when you've used those gendered terms, working on that on a daily basis, because I think the thing is that you just might not know how often during a session you're talking to a client and you're, you are using gendered language. Um, something to keep in mind is that uh, think about and evaluate if you are in an office space, and maybe one day in the future you will be if you're not now, again, um, restrooms. And you need to evaluate, are they more than likely, they probably are, gendered binary. Um, is there an option that's, first of all, um, gender neutral? And also for those even who don't necessarily need a gender neutral bathroom, but they still feel afraid to use the bathroom that aligns with their gender identity, um, the first thing to do is actually even just evaluate the restroom situation and see if there's anything you can do about that. Probably requires a conversation with a landlord, um, something like that. There's a lot more we could talk about that. Uh, and if it turns out that you're running into some challenges with that, or just in general, you can put something in your paperwork that says, uh, and it doesn't matter if people who aren't trans are reading it, they'll be like, oh, that's nice to know. Just say, here's the restroom situation here in the building. Um, let me know if you have any questions or concerns. And then if you do have a client, especially if they're limited in their options, offer to go with them and say, you know, if you, you know, at the beginning of our session, you realize you need to use the restroom and you're feeling afraid to use the restrooms in this building, um, please let me know. And just, we can even have a quick little thing that you have, you ask and, or point at something in my office and I'll say, sure, no problem. You know, you don't want to, is the person won't want to probably make it a big deal, but even just offering to do that, using restrooms is one of those things where as you kind of like think beyond, you know, if, if you are cisgender, what is it like to be a trans person? Being able to feel safe and comfortable, not even just comfortable, just safe in the very least to use a restroom, comfortable would be nice as well, is something that really is on the minds of a lot of these folks. So um, be sure that you you've thought through what's going on with the restroom situation in your office and in your building. Thank you. I'm glad you brought up that point. Um, one of the other things I've heard too from a number of people was uh, that the first time that they had worn makeup, the first time that they wore a button-down shirt um, that fit a certain way was going to their therapist's office. Uh, and that therapists that are affirming and competent will invite their clients to do that and say, this is a place where you get to do that. Um, I think there are so many things in, in this line that you and I could keep talking about. Um, so, which leads me to my next question for people who are listening, going, okay, so now I know this stuff and there's so much more I need to know. What resources do you recommend? I mean, obviously, so your book is, is one of the most recognized in, in this particular topic. And again, that's called you and your gender identity, a guide to discovery, but what are other resources? How do people get in touch with you so that they could further expand their knowledge and become affirming and competent with this? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just to mention, I know a lot of therapists who have purchased that book, um, even though the book is written for those who are gender questioning, they have found it to be um, insightful as to what is it that is the process that people who are gender questioning go through. Um, you're welcome to use the quizzes and exercises in it as well with your clients. That can really help, like you said, in terms of creating that safety of knowing how do you approach this with clients. You can um, absolutely use 
access that book for information. Um, there is a Facebook group that I'm in that I wanted to mention, and it's LGBQIA and Trans Affirming Therapists. Just like any group, there can be um, some turmoil and drama from time to time, but there's some really good, very dedicated moderators in that group. Um, I have a website at, at darahoffmanfox.com that has all of the different interviews I've given and the blog posts I've written links to my videos as well. Um, I have it designated where if you are trans you, or gender question, you click over here. And if you're a therapist, you click on a different part and some of it overlaps of course, but there's a, a lot of other ways um, to find resources there. Um, I do have a newsletter too, where I like to try to share this kind of information. Um, so uh, we can give the information uh, about how you can sign up for that as well in the show notes. So yeah, there's, um, like I mentioned, the WPATH standards of care. Do be sure to download that PDF. And if you're listening to this podcast, I think that would, if you haven't read them yet, I think that would be a great idea as well. Wonderful. Um, you have shared so much during this hour. Dara, thank you. Um, it's it's always a pleasure to talk with you and you, you bring so much confidence and expertise to this topic. And I'm I'm grateful that you shared this time with us. Thank you, Elizabeth. I, like I said, I really appreciate the time and the space to be able to share this because um, it means that everybody who's listening to this now knows more than they did before. And that'll just create the bigger change in the world that we need. Thank you so much. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.